Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 28th, 2019. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of the second episode of HBO's Watchmen. My name is Ben Pearson, I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's show by Slash Film writers Y. Tran Bowie. Hey everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys, we're back. We're talking about Watchmen again. Uh, I think this is going to be something that we do maybe for all nine episodes of the first season. Um, it's not 100% locked in, and of course, something crazy could happen where there's like a you know major Star Wars news or something that you know absolutely needs to be discussed beforehand, and we could maybe push our Watchmen recap episode until later in the week or something. But I think I mean, this, this is going to be this should be its own thing. It should be a spinoff, the the Watchcast, as I call <laughs> yeah. it. Yes. We should get uh, like our own logo. We need like a theme song. All the stuff. This is our <laughs> own our own little thing. Hey, that's a good idea. If anybody out there is a, a big fan of the show and likes what we're doing here, and you want to create a, a quick theme song for us, we'll use it on future episodes where we talk about Watchmen. So you can just yes, email that do. to us at peter at slashfilm dot com if you're uh, interested, and we'll be sure to you know credit you. Uh, if we end up using that in the show. So that, that'd be fun. But all right, guys, let's dive into the second episode, which is called uh, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Wow, that is a mouthful <laughs> of a title. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about what that title is actually alluding to a little bit later on. But let's start with the beginning of the episode. Uh, and again, final chance for people who haven't seen the episode yet. This is going to spoil everything. We're getting into you know full details of what's going on here. So um, the episode begins with the origins of the watch over this boy paper that we saw in the pilot uh, with a German secretary writing a flyer, which is basically trying to convince black American soldiers to come to Germany or, or fight for the German side. Did you guys, um, I, I didn't actually get the, write that dialogue down for this episode. what did you guys make of that? Well, that's a, that's a real thing that actually really happened. It was a real letter that got dropped, uh, you know, behind lines during world war one. And yeah, it's basically, a, you know, the, the, the Germans saying, you know, why fight for, uh, you know, America when America treats you worse than second class citizens, basically they don't, they don't treat you like human beings at all. So just like the first episode kicked off with a historical event that a lot of people don't know about, so did this one too. Yes, and then so I think the next thing we see is that Angela takes this old man who says that he hung Judd back to her lair, and she, you know, goes behind closed doors and lashes out in this really great moment for Regina King, where she's able to, you know, just like fully show the depth of her anger and loss at, at this, you know, this friend that she's just suffered this, uh, this horrible loss of. And then she tries to interrogate this old man. So there's this interesting conversation she has with him where he reveals that there's a, or, or he claims that there's a vast and insidious conspiracy right here in Tulsa, but he says he can't tell Angela about it or her head will explode. So he has to sort of like piece it out um, you know, piece by piece. And and Chris, I suspect because you've seen more of the show than we have, that you probably can't speak too much to this. But HC, did any of, uh, I guess, this interrogation scene with all these vague answers and stuff, did any of this um, set off any uh, any alarm bells for you? What, what were you thinking when you watched this part? 
Well, when he said that I have to give it to you in pieces, uh, I wondered if the lines that he kept repeating were part of that message that he was trying to convey to her. Mm -hmm. And the line that he kept repeating was when she asked, who are you? He would just respond, I'm the man who strung your chief of police up. And that's the line that he repeated the most. And I was like, oh, maybe there's a hidden message in it. And there is not. I wrote out the the sentence and I was like, maybe the first letters of of each word spell something out. It is not. It's like if my wish you, <laughs> maybe it means something else. Strung. Maybe the chief of police refers to someone else. Who knows? Um, well, yeah. this is and the he... level of uh, of insanity <laughs> that Watchmen is already driving us to in the second episode. <laughs> yes, and he claims a couple other things. He claims um that he's Dr. Manhattan, to which Angela responds, he's on Mars. Uh, He tells her that she curses too much. And then at one point he says that he has psychic powers, uh, which she doesn't believe, or she dismisses immediately because she says that psychic powers don't exist. But that's actually not true. Um, This is something that uh, Raphael Motemeyer wrote in our um, Watchmen Easter Egg egg Guide, uh, saying that psychic, psychic psychic powers um, are referred to in the original graphic novel. In the final issues of the graphic novel, Ozymandias reveals that his plan to drop the giant squid in Manhattan was operated through the stealing of a brain of a deceased supervillain who was psychic. So there have been uh, instances of psychic powers being present in this world. So Does she might... say psychic powers don't exist? I, don't, I didn't actually catch her say that. I think she I thought does? she was saying that Dr. Manhattan doesn't have that. Um, she doesn't believe him when he says he has psychic powers. So hmm. I kind of, I guess I kind of, it all blurred together for me. Maybe she didn't dismiss it entirely then, but she seems to not really believe him. Um, I think it's more that like she doesn't believe what he's saying, not so much that they exist. Or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I'm... Yeah, I mean, either way, that's good to point out because I certainly didn't remember that there was, you know, an actual psychic connection. I, I remember that, you know, the because I still haven't had a chance to reread the comic, but I remember that the squid, there was something involving like a psychic connection with people in the squid. And I, I forgot that Ozymandias had like harvested the brain of a supervillain to link that connection and, and sort of um, wreak havoc on New York when, with the whole squid thing. So, um, yeah, psychic powers apparently do exist in this world. I wonder if we're going to see, you know, like a, a physical manifestation of that, I guess, in anybody beyond Dr. Manhattan. We saw him briefly, very, very briefly in the uh, pilot episode. Um, so I guess Angela, right after this, she sort of gets the call about Judd's body and pretends to not know anything about this she goes to the scene and one of the interesting things i wanted to sort of get your read on both of you is the uh these people wearing this these moth costumes that are falling out of the sky and it looks like they're paparazzi or like part of a a news crew or something trying to figure out what's going on um i know that there were there was a moth based superhero in this world um chris or ht what'd you guys think of of that technology being used for like paparazzi purposes here i just thought i thought it was like a neat little background thing where it's like it doesn't have anything to do with the plot itself it's just like a neat thing to remind you that this sort of stuff exists in this world and that's how like the paparazzi would operate in this particular world with this sort of stuff yeah but at the same time it's also the police are like deliberately keeping this story hushed hush up for the moment. Like um, if you go on that 
that PTpedia site, which boy, I wish they'd change the name of that because I'm tired of saying that. Uh, <laughs> there's like a, a newspaper article that reveals that like the the chief is just list, listed as missing. They actually like they haven't revealed that he's dead yet in in this newspaper clipping thing. So they're hmm. for the time being they're keeping that like a secret. Right, and for those who don't know, PDPedia is the name of the sort of supplemental material uh, website that HBO is running and that sort of uh, fills out some of the Watchmen world that we don't actually see in the show, but it is all like, um, I guess canon is the word that you would use. Like, I think that it comes directly from the writer's room, like the, you know, Lindelof and his team have put together these fake articles, well, not fake, but these articles, uh, fictional articles, I should say. Um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, maybe we'll drop a link to that in the show notes if you want to explore and go down that rabbit hole a little bit further for yourselves. And we also get a flashback to the infamous White Knight sequence. This is, uh, something, uh, Angela alluded to in the pilot episode, and it was, what, the coordinated attack of, I think, 40 different police families on Christmas Eve. Um, we get to see what happened there and, and that Angela... Sort of. We sort of get to see what right, happened. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about that, Chris. Run it down for us. Right. Well, uh, this is the night that led to uh, the police, at least in Tulsa. I don't think it's like a worldwide thing. I think it's only in this this area uh, being allowed to wear masks because, you know, the, the attack happens and the police that survive pretty much all resign, according to Judd in the flashback. And in order to get new police, you know, on the job, they, they agree to let them wear masks to hide their identities. But the way this, this scene plays out is very curious because, you know, yeah, we, we know about the attack, but there's a lot of loose ends in this, in this, the way it's um, handled. For one thing, like Angela's husband, like completely disappears once uh, the attack happens. Like it doesn't really say where he is. And another thing, you know, Angela kills one of the the seventh cavalry guys, but she gets shot by another one, and we don't see what happened to that guy at all. And when she wakes up, the first thing she sees is Judd, and he only mentions the one dead uh, seventh cavalry member in the house. He doesn't say anything about the other one. So it's it's really up in the air about what happened to that other guy and why no one is talking about that other guy, whoever he may be. Uh, HT, do you have any theories about what happened there? Like, I think it seems like Cal, uh, Angela's husband, came away unscathed. Like, I don't think he sustained any sort of injuries from this. So that seems, um, I don't know if suspicious is the right word, but certainly uh, strange. It does seem strange. Um, And uh, when this scene first played out, I thought it was quite purposeful that we see Angela um, blackout and she's looking at the face of her would-be killer, one of the cavalry people who's um, pointing a gun in her face. And then when she wakes up uh, in Judd's face comes into focus. Mm, Um, And I had the kind of, I had the feeling that Judd was, had something to do with this attack or that he was that masked uh, cavalry member who was pointing a a gun at the, um, at Angela but it was more of a suspicion than anything. Uh, and that, I guess I'm going to jump ahead, but I will say I think that theory does have something behind it, considering what we find out at the end of the episode. Yeah, and that's that uh, Judd has a KKK costume with the police, like a sheriff's badge emblazoned on it. So, right. um, yeah, that's the big like skeleton in his closet that uh, that Will seems to 
uh, hint at Angela that, you know, there's there's something going on here. And then, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. So, um, you know, what happened? To and that, that ties into that theory I brought up last week about how the show is like dealing with institutionalized racism that exists in the police force. But these characters don't know about it. Also, I I. I have to add, even though I feel like I shouldn't have to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway just to make this one person happy. Someone got angry that I said this because they thought I was saying all police everywhere and all over the world are all racist. And that's that's not what I'm I'm saying with that that term institutionalized racism. But that's a thing. Like, I'm not making it up. It's, it's a real thing. There are studies on this. It's, you know, it's a well-documented thing. So I'm not... Uh, I'm not saying all police are racist, but there's definite, definite uh, documented racism within police forces. And to, to think there isn't would be naive. Uh, but I do think that's like a main plot line for this this show, because it just seems like they're definitely going down that road. Right. And I'm actually making a note because I'm going to I'm going to include uh, one of those studies or, or news pieces in the show notes for people who. Uh, either don't believe you or just want to learn a little bit more about that. So, um, yes, I, I think that goes without saying that, you know, in all of our conversations about Watchmen moving, moving forward, we all acknowledge that not every police officer in America or the world is racist, but there are some serious problems within that organization that probably need to be addressed and dealt with. So, uh, right. yes, good call. And, and I hope like, this series will deal with is. Um, because I feel like, like it has to. Like, yeah. Yeah. The way it's going, like I mean, by literally making Judd a Klansman or indicating he is, there is that moment where, like, it, I thought it was interesting that Angela's first assumption is that Judd's being framed. Like, she rather than immediately believe that you know this guy she's known and who was nice to her could even be possibly racist, she immediately just assumes that. It, will like planted that thing there to, mm. to frame him yeah and that i think that's part of what we were talking about last week too like the complications of this show if it, we don't know exactly what this means for judd and and um what uh, other secrets he could be hiding but judd you know, for, at least from that first episode seemed like a family man who maybe had a, a tiny bit of a drug problem, but also like a relatively nice guy, you know? And yeah, he was really, he's really charming. And I, I, I love that they've thrown this twist in there. Yeah, it's like, so things are, are more gray than they appear, even though actually Angela in one of the later scenes tells her son, Topher, that uh, she and him see the world in in black and white uh, the way that it is, according to them. Um, right. And we should mention too that, that uh, we learn because of this white knight flashback sequence that uh, Angela's partner and uh, the partner's wife were murdered during that uh, coordinated raid. So she and Cal adopted their children. So that's why there's like a mixed race family situation going on there. Um, and, right. I, I, and just to piggyback off that scene, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. But um, this was the episode, this is the episode that like started to make me feel exhausted because it like, you have like I, I realized that when I went back to write the recap slash review of this episode, I was like, I need to like study every inch of every frame of this show. And on one level, that's really cool. But on another level, it's like it's going to get really <laughs> uh, exhausting after a while. And I, I'm curious to see how, how it goes. But one thing I found interesting you know, by paying attention to all this stuff is 
during that scene where she's talking to Topher, he's building a castle and then he, he knocks it down, which directly ties back to Dr. Manhattan building a castle on Mars in that first episode and knocking it down. And then of course, Jeremy Irons, character also lives in a castle. So it's just like the show is just like littered with all this stuff where it's like, you need to be paying attention to like every single frame. And I, I'm, I'm curious how that's going to go over because not to throw everyone under the bus, but it seems like most people watch TV these days with their like cell phones in hand so they can like live tweet it. And I feel like if you're live tweeting this show, you're going to miss stuff like that. And I'm really wondering how that's going to play out over the next few weeks where people are like going to miss all these tiny details. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like um, Westworld or even like uh, twin peaks, the return in that way where there's like so much going on that where this is, this is an active show. You have to be an active viewer of the show. You, you certainly can't watch it passively and get the same experience from it that, that I think Lindelof and the rest of the people want you to have with it. So it um, certainly reminds me of when I was watching lost and a lot of every frame would be picked to pieces whether some of the details are intentional or not. But I think Lindelof definitely uh, used a lot of his experience with lost and um, just kind of the, the uh, hype around it to create something that was even more detailed and even more just packed with imagery and meaning. Yeah. What I like about this though, is like, it feels like it's actually leading to something (laughs) or as, as much as I, I am no, no shade on lost. I love lost. I even like that last season that everyone hates, but a lot of stuff in lost, even by like their own admission was just like stuff. They just like threw in there. Like this will be interesting. And then it never (laughs) went anywhere. Whereas this show, you can, you can tell like all this stuff they're packing in here. It actually feels like it's, it's actually leading somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Chrissy mentioned the castle connection with the toy, and you know, last week we talked about is the castle that Dr. Manhattan was wiping away on Mars the same castle that uh, that Jeremy Irons' character is living in? It certainly looks like it, and it looks like this toy is the same, you know, architecture and, and layout as that as well. And and as you mentioned, this this boy also Topher also sort of swipes it away. So like the idea of castles tumbling down seems to be. Um, something, you know, a recurring visual motif here. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but maybe that'll lead us into discussion of, uh, of Jeremy Irons. Very nice symbolism. It's just the idea of like our dream castle, the dream world that we live in tumbling down because of reality. Or like institutions are crumbling because yes. of, of the vast and insidious conspiracy. This is a good show, guys. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> it is, but let's talk about Jeremy Irons and, and the Watchmaker's son really quickly because that's not a long section of this episode, but it is certainly an interesting one. So, um, HT, what, what do you remember about this sequence? What, what were some details that jumped out to you? Oh, well, this is... Um... Uh, Jeremy Irons' character, who is still yet to be named in the in the show, uh, basically using his employees to reenact the origins of Doctor Manhattan, and um, we see him basically create a script and uh, coach his his employees to cry for real and um, you know do their best in their in this performance, uh, a performance which turns out to be frighteningly real um, and kind of a snuff play in a sense because the man who plays uh, Dr. Manhattan, um, his human form, who I can't actually remember the name of now. It's like uh, John Osterman. John Osterman, Osterman, yeah. Uh, When he goes into the chamber that is meant to be the the nuclear chamber that 
ends up turning it, turning him into Dr. Manhattan. Um, he gets uh, set on fire and burned to death. And um, then we see, and it's, a, it's, a, it's some fun, really horrifically, like blackly funny uh, parts of this is Jeremy Irons' character just mouthing along to the words and very enthusiastically watching this performance and um, getting very touched by his own play being put into um, reality by these very, these actors who are really good at playing acting bad um so and at the end of this uh we see uh the it's revealed that the his employees all of them who were masked before are actually clones of each other there's just two employees a man and a woman who are all cloned and um we also see like a nice little homage to dr manhattan's giant blue penis yes you can't make a watchman thing without some blue penis in there yes Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting too that, um, you know, I was getting some serious, like the prestige vibes from this <laughs> with all the clones and stuff. Um, but also the, the scene opens, I think with, um, uh, Jeremy Irons character. I keep wanting to call him Adrian Veidt, but it's not a hundred percent confirmed yet. So he's sitting there and I think the cake that he's served in this scene has two candles on it instead of one. And I, I think the whole thing we're seeing with him Damon Lindelof loves to play with time. We saw that a lot on Lost. And I, I'm i not sure exactly when the scenes with his character, uh, with Jeremy Irons' Ooh. character, are happening. But I, I oh. don't think that they're happening at the exact same time as they're being intercut with the events that we're seeing in Tulsa. Um, it, not, it seemed... not to mention, like, the cake is supposed to be an anniversary thing, and he yeah. wouldn't have, like, an anniversary the next day. So, right. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I actually didn't catch that. Too. Yeah, and I think oh. the the implication last week was I'm just starting to write this play, The Watchmaker's Son. It's going to be a tragedy in five acts, blah, blah, blah. And and what we see in this episode, it seems like, yeah, maybe it is a full year later because the play is done and it's been acted out enough times where he seemingly has, you know, a ton of bodies in the closet already or in the basement or wherever, um, you know, that, that have blown up during that uh, climactic scene that we see enacted here. So, and there are also like a bunch of signs and stuff in the background. I couldn't exactly zoom in enough to to read a hundred percent and and get some clarity on what all of those say. But I wonder if that's part of the set decorations and and um, you know the the production aspect of this play that he's putting on there. But anyway, it seems like some time has has definitely passed between when we saw Jeremy Irons in the last episode and then when we saw him in this one. So something to, to sort of track moving forward, um, certainly. So uh, I think that's it for, for that sequence, right? Chris, was there anything else that you noticed uh, in that scene that, that jumped out to you? Uh, no, just that he's very mean. <laughs> he's, Jeremy Irons is very, like, I thought last week, even though he was obviously not, nice he seemed sort of likable but this week he's just like full-blown jerk and i kind of think that actually underscores the passage of time too because he's you know he was kind of nicer to his servants in the first episode and this one he's not just he set them on fire but he's like calling them idiots and stuff so yeah it's I like, like he's you're getting setting them on fire with like with be calling them idiots. They're like yeah. this is mean in both. Yeah. <laughs> different forms of meanness, fire yeah. and name calling. And I guess the clone thing speaks to or sort of informs the uh, last week when they were trying to cut the cake with a horseshoe. So that sort of explains some of that. And then um, at HT, you mentioned that uh, 
Jeremy Irons was like mouthing along with the words. The the words that he said at the same time that his actor said it were uh, nothing ever ends. And I think that was the last thing that Dr. Manhattan actually said to Ozymandias in the comic. So um, it certainly left an impression on him if he's still thinking about it, you know, 30 years later and writing a play about about Dr. Manhattan. So um, yeah, worth noting all of that stuff for sure. So back in the actual action of the show, um, Red Scare, the the Russian, I guess I guess all the masked characters who all the characters who aren't wearing yellow masks are like detective ranks. Did we talk about that last week? Like yeah, you I, know, I think like the detectives get to form their own like personas, whereas like if you're like a uniformed cop, you just get that yellow mask. I think that's that's what I get from how yeah. this plays out. Yeah, that's sort of the vibe I was getting as well. So Red Scare, the Russian one, uh, decides to lead a charge into Nixonville, which is that um, uh, like trailer park area, and he wants to round up really everybody in there. I wrote on the doc that he wants to round up suspects, but that's not entirely true. He, he wants to round up everyone in that area and throw them into the paddy wagon, essentially, and just do you know a full wide-scale interrogation of all of them hoping to find out who killed Judd and this is another area where like they're not exactly using um <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you would call it but like Ethical. sanctioned yeah yeah <laughs> sanctioned police techniques where uh it makes sense to do this this is there's sort of some uh they're, they're crossing a line there by just gr- going into this area where yes likely there are some people who may be part of the seventh cavalry or whatever but just like um, willy-nilly grabbing everybody and trying to round them up uh, is not exactly following the strict letter of the law. So um, a fight breaks out there. I don't know if we need to really go in detail on that unless you guys had any um, any uh, points to raise about Angela getting involved in that fight or, or how you thought that um, sequence played out. No. No. Okay. No, All right. I cool. think you described it really well. Okay. Um, so Angela takes the coffee cup with Will's DNA on it to, I think it's called the Greenwood Center for Cultural Heritage, and plugs it into a machine and discovers that he is her grandfather. So that's like the big holy shit revelation of this episode. Um, right. Henry Louis Gates Jr. is the Secretary of the Treasury in this world. In real life, he's actually a Harvard University professor and prominent scholar and, and historian of uh, African American history and culture. So that was cool. I didn't know who that was, but I read about that afterwards and thought that was a nice uh, nod and sort of an interesting, um, uh, you know, way that the real world blends into this world in in a uh, fictional society in which Robert Redford has been, you know, running things for decades on end. Um, what did you guys make of this scene? You know, we, we saw the carnage of the Tulsa uh, riots or, or um, massacre, rather, uh, last week. But now we see it sort of memorialized and, and there appears to be a structure in place for actual reparations of people who are descendants or, or were involved in that stuff. So what did you guys make of, uh, of this part of the show? Right. And they even say the museum is, is like built on the site of the massacre. So it's like this. Yeah. So it um, and also like you can only use that DNA thing for people who were like involved with or descended from the massacre, too, which I thought was interesting. And I, I wonder if like other cities in this in this world have places like this with similar things. I'm not I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering that too because it seemed very narrow. Like, of course, this was a terrible, um, a tragedy that happened. But for a modern president to, uh, you know, get his his to get like a um, federal funding involved on on uh, for a city in Tulsa, you know, and just 
uh, narrow the scope to those directly affected by this one specific um, instant, uh, uh, tragedy in, you know, in the nation's history. It seemed very um, myopic if that's the only <laughs> thing that there is. But I think maybe um, we just haven't seen the full scope of it. Yeah, I wonder if it's part of a wider campaign um, for reparations. Actually, I thought it was really interesting that they we saw protesters was either outside the museum or outside the police department um, with signs protesting red predations, mm -hmm. um, yeah. as they're called, as they're like, you know, um, nicknamed. And um, I wonder if like this museum was just part of one of those, whatever those red predations are. Um, in this is something that uh, I don't know what the extent of those those uh, reparations are, but um, as I was watching it, I was confused um, until like the white the later revelation about um, Topher being the son of Angela's partner. I thought that her children were implied to be part of those red red predations. Mm. Like she was given reparations by given by being like by adopting these white children or something. You and, thought that after last week's yeah. episode? No, I thought that um, earlier in the episode. I was a little, I kind of didn't come together for me until mm. like um, later on. And I was like, oh, okay, Topher is her partner's son. Gotcha, um, gotcha. And I was also confused by who the man outside their house was. I might have not been paying attention completely I'm else. Pr I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be their grandfather, like the grandfather okay. of the kids, played by the great Jim Beaver, one of my yeah. favorite character actors. Yeah, he's awesome. He was in you know, Deadwood and a bunch of, a bunch of stuff, Justified, I think, too. Um, yeah. They didn't explicitly say who that was, but I think just based on the age and the way that he was talking about the kids, I think that's that's what we're meant to take from that. Yeah. And she, she literally has to like buy him off. <laughs> like he, he wants to be paid to go away, which I thought was a nice touch yeah. of what this guy is like yeah i thought the way that like the poisonous way that he treated her as if she didn't deserve to take in these children was somewhat related to those red predations i don't know that was just my sort of takeaway from it um but it probably doesn't have to do with it because they are her partner's kids um which makes sense i guess but uh yeah i wonder what the the uh, extent of those retrodations are yeah it kind of it seemed to me like he resented her for having money and maybe he mm. just you know it, it ties it all up in that and and is trying to operate with the worldview that that she didn't deserve what she got but you know she was handed you know it's a handout you know like that sort of common familiar refrain that we've heard a lot mm -hmm. um so i guess moving on um angela goes to judd's house and she as we mentioned, finds that the skeleton in Judd's closet, but she also meets a character named Joe Keen there, who is played by the guy who played Bob in Mad Men. What is his name? Um, He's just God, Bob. I, it's Bob Benson. Bob. Yeah, Bob Benson. Yeah, you Not know. Not great the guy. Bob. Uh, yes, I'll look that up in a second. But um, Chris, what do we know about this character? Um, he, he's, I guess, related to a character that we saw in the Watchmen graphic novel, right? Uh, I don't know about that. He's like someone's son they keep mentioning. I can't remember who the, the keen is from the comic, but he's also running for pre like he's going to be the new president because I don't know. It's weird in, in the documents on that again, PTpedia, please excuse me for saying that it mentions that Robert Redford is not seeking another term, but the show kind of implicates he is, and that this guy is running against him. So I don't know where the wires are getting crossed there, but in that case, he's, he's supposedly, the guy who's going to take over to be president. He's also the person who, um, cause I think he's like a governor or something where, who, who enacted the law to 
let p- the police wear the masks. So that's who he is. <laughs> yeah, his name is uh, is James Wolk. Um, that's the actor's name. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking this up on uh, Watchmen Wikipedia right now, and it says that the Keene Act was a national law passed in 1977 by Congress that outlawed costumed adventuring, and it was passed by a senator named John David Keene. And I think this guy, uh, James Walk's uh, character, Joe Keene, is that person's son. So right. Yeah, um, I was about to say the same thing, because they do reference um, his family or like how he kind of gotten that position because of his father or something yeah and and he's a senator i think that Mm -hmm. is his title um there appears to be some sort of miscommunication about whether judd's wife still works for him or once worked for him so maybe that's something that they're teeing up for uh more you know further exploration later on down the line um it's also worth noting i think that angela uses night owl technology when she's searching around in judd's closet the uh cool uh, x-ray goggles and stuff and apparently in some of that here we go again with that word the the pedipedia uh <laughs> supplemental materials i think it, it's indicated that the government appropriated um night owl's technology after dan dryberg the guy who we know as night owl um was uh, apprehended in i think the mid 90s so that's why we saw the police ship that looked like the owl ship uh, last week is because I guess the government has has taken that technology and sort of um, made it useful or, or usable for you know police forces and um, and you know whoever they deem necessary. So right. um, yes, I think uh, oh okay. So Angela arrests Will uh, and uh, basically she she confronts him and he says he has friends in high places and then he is immediately proven literally correct <laughs> as a mysterious ship drops this huge magnet down onto the top of Angela's car where Will is sitting and then it just whisks him away and like that's basically the end so like what the hell uh HG, do we have any indication of who is behind this what are, what are your theories about what's going on with this part I have no idea I was so just taken aback by this entire sequence that I I don't know who it could be um yeah I I I have no idea. I mean, I guess the um, the theory would be that it would be a former superhero, a costume vigilante of a sort, who has an association with Will. Um, but I can't, off the top of my head, think of any that are related to magnets. I haven't done like my full research into the entire lexicon of the Watchmen uh, superhero characters, but that would be my theory: is that it's a, a former Watchmen or a former Minutemen who has some magnet uh association and association with will yeah and i think i don't know chris i'm not sure how much you can say here based on what you you know the actual knowledge that you already have going into this but um i don't know is there anything that you could tease uh not giving anything away but just i guess based on your thoughts of this episode uh, specifically uh <laughs> <laughs> let I'm me say you... that earlier there's a there's a moment where there's two newspaper, there's a newspaper guy and the guy who delivers his newspaper, which is a direct callback to the comic because there were characters like that in the comic. And there's a, a young woman who comes and buys all the newspapers. And he asks, does she read all these? And the woman says, yes, she does. So I'll just say, keep that in mind because that's going to have something to do with 
the magnet and stuff like that. <laughs> she also, she kind of looked like a, she was wearing a, like a Girl Scout uniform or something yeah. too. Um, and something I didn't write down that I, I, Chris, you just reminded me of that I wanted to bring up to you guys too, was I think those newspaper headlines indicate that squid uh, rainfall has been happening in four cities. Mm-hmm. But like... If Tulsa is one of those, which we we saw the squid rain last week, but we also saw that that city already has an infrastructure in place to deal with it. Like there are alarms and people know what to do. And then there's the cleanup that already happens. Like this seems like a regular thing that has been happening for a long time that people are used to. Nobody really batted an eye at it when it happened. So I'm just not sure why there would be front page news yeah i was a little thrown off by that too because the headline says like scientists baffled and it makes it sound like it's like this new thing but yeah i had that same thought like they have a whole system in place to warn for it so it can't be that new so i don't know yeah that was like i'm not sure if that's like a goof or what i I doubt it's a goof i don't know what the implication is for that unless that's supposed to be like some weird flashback which i don't think it is so I, i don't know what that's supposed to be saying. Yeah. Um, maybe um, it will become clear a little bit later on. Uh, I don't have much to add. I just want to say that it's interesting that this uh, squid sort of rainfall is the source of a lot of conspiracy theories that one of the, the two newspaper men were discussing and how they were basically suggesting that the government was behind all of this. And um, that was an interesting conversation that I have nothing to add to, but just wanted to point it out. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of continuing a thread from last week a little bit, um, hinting at that. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned Will being sort of whisked away by this mysterious ship. I love the look that he gives to Angela in the side mirror, this sort of like uh, smirk that he knows <laughs> he knows what's coming. Um, and, and Jacob, who couldn't be on today's episode, uh, had this theory that I was thinking about as well, but and I think Chris, you were too, that Will might be the original... Hooded Justice, who's the character that we see in the American Hero Story um, uh, episode snippet of this episode, and and we'll talk about that in just a second. But before we get to that part, I just wanted to get your theories or, or your thoughts on the idea that Will, this you know 105 year old man, may have been the original superhero, because I think Hooded Justice was the hero, like the very first one, the one who right. sort of started yeah. it all. And we get that whole scene from American uh, hero story, which is all about that character. And it would tie directly into the very first thing we see in this show where uh, the young will is watching a silent movie where there really, there literally is a hooded figure dulling out justice. And he has in, uh, in the form of Bass Reeves. So I, I've seen some other people. So that's just this theory too. And I do think it tracks because in, you know, the Watchmen universe, Hooded Justice is like the one superhero whose true identity was never like learned. So that could be a clever way for the show to like tie directly into that by finally revealing who it was. Yeah. And I think Jacob also pointed out that it would explain the noose as being part of his costume with uh, Will like repurposing a symbol that was used against black Americans to, you know, as like an empowering part of this superhero costume. So it seems like it would tie in and that would be kind of a, an interesting way to rewrite uh, and recontextualize history a little bit because a lot of times, you know, 
I don't know. It just seems like the black superhero being the very first one and, and spawning this whole thing would be sort of like a revolutionary concept, um, even within this world. So, um, yeah, right. worth worth mm-hmm. thinking about. For and sure. like when Will goes away with the magnet ship, like the same note falls down. And it's interesting. I love that. Like not only is it great cyclical how it ties back into the, the the beginning of the episode but it's once again you know a note about you know why are you defending people who treat you poorly and that could like be a message again that ties into the whole angela doesn't realize she's working for a a, a corrupt racist institution and she's mm-hmm. so uh, again i i hate to keep hammering that home but i really think that's where the show is going and I, th- I think it's interesting, too, because after the first episode, there were some people who were like, this show is oddly pro-cop, which it's, it clearly isn't. And uh, I think the lesson here is don't jump to conclusions with the show because it, it seems to be going in a very specific direction. Yeah, and, and certainly willing to upend your expectations and, and uh, what it what you think has been established at, at a moment's notice. Because like we were talking about with Judd, like he seemed like a nice guy, and then all of a sudden, man, the rug is pulled out and we learn this whole new thing about him. Um, which may or may not be true. I guess theoretically he could be framed, but I, I feel like there's something there. So uh, let's talk about, uh, right before we, we're getting close to the end here, but let's talk about the American Hero story. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what you would call this, but it, it goes back to... film Yeah, it goes back to the, the graphic novel's um, uh, inclination of, um, yeah, telling stories within stories. So we saw uh, this show teased in the pilot episode, and now we actually got to to watch like a you know a couple minute segment of it. Um, so th- the most obvious thing here is that the style of this show is not necessarily like Ryan Murphy, um, even though American Hero Story is sort of a, a callback to or a, a shout out to his uh, American Horror Story and, and American Crime Story uh, anthology shows, but that the visual flair of this thing and the, the style of it looks very, very similar to what Zack Snyder did with the 2009 version of Watchmen. So um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What did you guys think of that? Do you think this is Damon Lindelof trying to dunk on Zack Snyder? Is it trying? To, is it him trying to make fun of this or just pay homage to it? Like what? What did you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. How did you? Um, I mean, about... I think it's it's definitely meant to like be a winking reference to that. Whether or not Lindelof is dunking on him or not, I don't. I don't know how he feels about Zack Snyder, but he could be dunking on the movie rather than the guy because, you know, a lot of people don't like that Watchmen movie because it's bad. So, um, but I, I think it's it's definitely meant to reference that in some capacity. It, it'd be, it's like impossible not to look at it that way. Yeah, it's at the very least poking fun at the whole visual language that Zack Snyder and his Watchmen are so well known for. As soon as you know, the slow-mo kicks in. I just, I chuckled. It was just so, it was just so, such a clear, like, nod to it. And um, the uh, ultra-violence as well, the, the hyper-saturated colors, uh, it was very telling. Like, I felt like in, like, the whole, all the callbacks to Watchmen, the graphic novel, this is the one time where it actually goes um, in reference to the movie. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the gritty uh voiceover and stuff too like the super serious tone of it all it's it, yeah the speed ramping is really the thing that sort of hammers it home like if there's if there was any confusion as soon as you see speed ramping you're like oh yeah this is definitely it but um i thought it might be worth bringing up just for people who 
I don't know. I, I feel like this has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like Jacob pointed it out on Twitter. Like, you know, he thought that this was Lindelof dunking on Snyder. And apparently he's just been getting inundated with Zack Snyder fans, like uh, trying to refute that. But I thought it would be interesting to point out when this Watchmen show was first announced, I wrote an article for SlashFilm.com about uh, Lindelof and his relationship to Watchmen. And he, in uh, 2009, right around the time that Zack Snyder's movie came out, was asked what he thought about the movie because he was such a big Watchmen comic fan at that time. And he said, uh, I think Zack Snyder made the best possible movie adaptation considering the fact that he was really out not to revise things. The fans really wanted a literal adaptation. That's exactly what he delivered. He delivered that with an incredible amount of grace and skill. But I think that for those of us who basically said, how do you do Watchmen in a two and a half hour movie? He has now answered this is how you just have to kind of leave it at that over time i think history will basically tell whether the movie was brilliant or less than but all i can say is how incredibly impressed i personally was watching what zach had accomplished so it seemed like at least 10 years ago uh, lindelof was yeah impressed with with what snyder had done there and of course you know times could have changed his opinion could have uh, shifted and, and morphed over the years um, but I just thought that was worth pointing out for people who are trying to read super into, you know, whether this was a, a dunking or an homage or like what what was actually going on there. So um, I'm sure somebody will ask Lindelof about it in an interview and he likes to talk a lot. So I'm sure we'll probably this is not the last we're going to be hearing about that particular moment. I'm almost certain. Um, all right. So to completely wrap up this episode, the last topic that I wanted to bring up, the episode title uh, what is it again? Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Uh, this is based on a painting that we see in uh, Judd's house. So, Chris, what do we know about this painting, and, and what did you think of that title being used for this episode, and what did you think it might be saying in the whole thing? I honestly don't know what this means. For one thing, they changed, like, the actual painting is by uh, an artist named George Caitlin, is Comanche Feats of Horsemanship. That's that's the, the painting's name. And for some reason, they they changed it for the this episode title. So they obviously changed it for a reason, but I can't figure out what that reason is because it's clear they're, they're riffing on that painting because they showed the damn painting in Judd's house. But I can't really, I don't know what, why they made it wordier, why they changed it. I, I don't know what they're trying to say with this. Yeah. I was wondering about the renaming, if that might be just like a legal thing, like they couldn't get I mean, the I think rights. The painting is to... from like the 1800s. So, you okay. Can... So maybe so... a copyright has, has run yeah. out or whatever. Yeah. Um, HT, what did you think of that? That did you have any like thoughts about, there was that really slow zoom into that painting. I was um, actually where... about to refer to that. I was like, there's that slow zoom into the painting. And what, what uh... did you, what did you read into that? What, what can you draw there? Well, the thing I noticed was the, the different colorings of the horses once the um, the Native Americans start to like get on on top of the horses. There's one horse in particular that um, has a white head and a black body that the Native American is like struggling to get on top of while he is shooting an arrow at one of his other compatriots or shooting arrow to the left. And I wondered if it was a racist sort of. Um, suggestion that these uh, minorities native americans are turning our the uh the pure white horses into something less than hmm. the one thing i'm looking at the painting now and it could also just be there are four horses in the painting and it could be like the four horsemen of the apocalypse thing and mm. 
one of the horses in you know of the four horsemen is a pale horse and that's like death and that's the white horse and the thing so it could just be that but i don't again i'm not sure why they would change the title that's the only thing that's what's really throwing me off here i don't understand why they they changed the title yeah another thing i want to say this is my first time seeing the painting by the way in this episode so i was just kind of trying to read into the imagery and what the show is trying to say with it um the white horse on the right that chris was talking about the spear of the native american is looks like it's coming out of its head because of the way it's placed uh in a way that looks like a unicorn horn uh, and I don't know if that's significant anyway, but I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, I was having trouble trying to draw parallels between what the episode was actually trying to get at with this thing, but the only thing that I could sort of kind of come up with was it seemed like two of the four horsemen were doing that thing where they're sort of, like, hanging off the side of the horse and using the horse as a shield while they're in battle or presumably in battle and i'm i just i don't know you know we've, we've talked a lot about institutions on this episode and and what that could mean where you know somebody is trying to hide behind an institution and and um you know if they have like ulterior motives and they're they're hiding behind like the the idea that judd maybe is part of the kkk and maybe has some sort of uh vast and, cons- and insidious uh conspiracy um, and and uh, negative impacts or, or whatever he wants to do, some sort of bad plan that he wants to put in motion, but he's hiding alongside or, or um, behind the uh, the safety net of being the chief of police. I don't know, maybe there's something there. I, I'm just randomly sort of throwing that out off the top of my head. I'm not sure if that's intentional or just me trying to read too far into it. But uh, I would be interested to hear if our listeners had any theories on that because I I think the show definitely wants us to think about it I just wasn't sure exactly what they wanted us to pull from it but if anybody has any additional theories or um you know anything that you uh that jumped out at you I I would love to hear what you have to think if or have to say about that uh you can email us at peter at slashfilm.com so I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode was there anything else in this episode of Watchmen that you guys thought maybe we we didn't cover or might be worth bringing up here before we bring it to a close it's a good show. <laughs> I know I, I really love this show and I'm I'm I don't you know, I, I didn't used to get like this obsessive about shows, like even like Lost and stuff like that. Even when I loved it, I was never this obsessive about it. But there's something about this specific show that has me like like uh just like zeroing in on like every little thing and trying to dissect every little thing and i think that's cool that there is a show like that on right now because i can't think of any show on tv right now that is like this like not only is it you know telling this you know engrossing story but it's also dealing with really heavy themes and i kind of love that the show, which is obviously popular, is like not, like not so subtly sneaking all this serious stuff in, to, you know, in between all the the nerdy stuff. It's just a very interesting show, and I, I hope I hope people are watching it. I'm guessing they are, since we're getting such feedback about the show on the site. But I I hope people are are paying attention to it. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, HG, any final thoughts on this episode? What did you uh, What did you think about it in terms of, uh, I guess, comparisons to last week? Are, are you feeling like the show is leading somewhere? Are you getting the sense that it um, it knows what it's doing at this point? 
I'm very excited by this episode because it just upholds the standards that the first episode uh, just kicked off with. And I remember watching the first episode and being almost a little overwhelmed just because there was so much information and so many things happening. Um, but this one, I found myself getting really excited just because of the plot start wheels starting to, to turn. And um, again, like Chris was saying, I, I love the, I, I love having a show again that lets me dissect and just uh, overanalyze every aspect of it. It was lost was that for me at the beginning. Um, I, I just would read page long recaps, uh, pages long recaps of that show. And I feel like Watchmen will, will be the same. And I, I, I really hope that it'll continue to uh, be as good as this past two episodes are. Yeah, I'm. I think if this show was, if they made the announcement this this was going to be an ongoing thing, I might be a little bit more hesitant about uh, getting so into the weeds on the details and stuff. But I think because Lindelof has made it clear that these first nine episodes constitute a full, complete arc of the story that he was trying to tell, and he also said that he might not even come back for a season two if there even is a season two. Um, that this, you know, that that he would be theoretically happy enough to walk away from this, telling this, um, you know, after one season, telling this story that he certainly wants to tell. I, I think that um, that sort of one and done nature of it, or or that uh, approach to it gives me more, um, I don't know, it, it makes me feel more comfortable diving in and, and realizing that all of these things are probably in there for a reason instead of, you know, like, some of the stuff just being tossed in. Yeah, I'm right there with it. I, I, there's nothing I hate more than when it's like, you'll find out about that in a few seasons. Like, uh, just <laughs> like, I don't want to wait that long. And like, I, I hope that if this does spark other seasons, they take sort of like, an anthology approach and each season tells its own contained story with new characters in this world. Cause I think that would be a really cool way to do it rather than like dragging the same story out over multiple seasons. Yeah. Yeah. And we've already seen like how um, compelling a Watchmen story can be with a character at the center of it who has nothing to do, who has never appeared in the graphic novel or has nothing to do with any of the other, you know, Watchmen characters that we know of within, in the form of Angela. So uh, it's definitely possible to tell stories in this universe and, and use this as like a grand tapestry to sort of tell a new story on. So I hope that happens. Um, but uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about uh, all of the Watchmen stuff that we mentioned in uh, the show notes and of course at slashfilm.com I'll link to a bunch of things here so you can uh, do more reading if you're interested in that Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site like Chris's review and we have a, a reference guide with easter eggs and all that stuff so um, yeah definitely check those out you can subscribe to this show on iTunes Google Podcasts Overcast Spotify all the popular podcast apps Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, uh, interpretations of the uh, painting and what you think it might mean to peter at slashfilm.com and leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.